God has given us here at Rock Valley Bible Church a, uh, a wonderful building. Um, through Rockford Christian High School, though it's not our own building, it still provides a, a great place for us to meet. And I know the scenery around us doesn't look too much like a, a church building. I don't see stained glass. I don't see many pews. Uh, there's no cross in the front of an auditorium. It's often the case in many churches. Come, come to think of it, this doesn't seem like much of an auditorium at all now, does it? But you think about the blessings of this place. We have all the classrooms we could ever want. We can go up and down that hall. I mean, we could have 20 times the kids we have and meet them easily with 15 nurseries. Month segregated. That would be really easy. We have a gymnasium over here, which provides a wonderful place for our kids. How many of you kids were in the gymnasium before service started today? And Doug, and who else was? A bunch of you. And after service, it allows us adults to be here. And if the kids want to go and play, they can. I've been known to play a few basketball games with some teenagers. Some of you can try to challenge me if you like. I'm, I'm up for the challenge. The administration here at Rockford Christian High School is wonderful to work with. Um, we just have favor with them. Um, we stand well in their eyes. They help. They say you can set up Saturday night. We have the, the facility all day Sunday, whatever we want, the rain of it, as long as they're not using it. It's a wonderful place, very functional for us, and it works out well. And each of us need to be thankful for this place. But, you know, my guess is that most of us, we walked in here this morning, probably didn't express, God, thank you for this place. Now, there may have been some of you who walked in here and said, Wow, Lord, what a wonderful place you've provided us with. And I bet that all of us, as we walked in here, we spent no time thinking about everything that was involved in bringing this building to where it is today. Uh, I want you to think about everything that took place for this building to come here. I mean, first of all, you need to have, years ago, a group of people dedicated to a cause, Christian education. I don't know how big this group was years ago. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. I don't even know when. But somewhere there had to be some people like that, had to go through some effort to raise some some funds for this building. And I don't know the details, but I'm sure that there were several who gave substantially, sacrificed from their own finances to fund and help this building. And after the money was raised, allocated, promised, pledged, whatever, you had to find land, purchase land, then an architect needed to be... Uh, commissioned, who envisioned the building in his mind. He started writing it down on paper and his blueprints. Long before any shovel hit the dirt, it was all envisioned in the mind of the architect. The, the, the location of the foundation was established. The location of the walls were determined. The outlets and switches and lights and toilets and drains and sinks and windows, all established before spade hit the soil. Every detail worked out, the pitch of the roof, the size of the rooms, the length of the hallways, the location of the bathrooms. And then the building crews came in. First of all, you had ground graders, excavators come in, cement crews pouring the cement, construction crews putting up the wall, electricians running wires, plumbers running the pipe, roofers putting on the roof. And then finally, when it's all done, the school can use it for what they intended to use it for, And then years after even the building was dedicated and used for a while, we approached the uh, administration, clueless of all this stuff, and asked for permission to use this building, and then they they let us use it. 
All of these things done entirely part of us. I mean, how many of you know who it was who was in the beginning stages of thinking about, dreaming about a Christian high school someplace in Rockford? Maybe some of you maybe have a link to somebody who was on a board, perhaps. But how many of you were involved in designing this building or building this building? And yet all of us have the opportunity to enjoy the use of this building. Well, think about what's true of your spiritual life. What's true of the physical building here is every bit as true as your spiritual life. You may well live most of your life taking your salvation for granted like we take this building for granted. You may think your salvation just came about recently. Um, Well, because I believed in, in Christ a few years ago. But never thinking of everything that was involved totally apart from your knowledge and understanding and, and planning. I hope that your thinking goes beyond just a few years ago when you're saved. I hope it goes back 2,000 years ago to the cross and realize that there was where your sins were paid for as Jesus was stretched out on Calvary. But you know what? Even I want to push you further back than that. I want to put you further back than the cross even you know what? before the world was created. Because God was the architect back then, planning our salvation. This may be a new thought to you. I hope it's not, but it's plainly taught throughout all the Bible that before the creation of the world, God planned our salvation. If you're a believer in Christ today, before the foundation of the world, God planned it, chose you, selected you, planned how in time... Christ would come and accomplish our salvation on the cross and that in time we, by faith, come to believe and trust in Him and enjoy the result of everything that God has planned and worked about for ages beforehand and 2,000 years ago with Christ, what we enjoy today. So similarly, what we enjoy as a building today has a lot more history to it than even you might think. And so this morning, I wanted to focus our attention upon the, the plan of salvation Now, by that, I'm not just talking about the plan of how you can be saved. I'm talking about the the big picture of salvation. I want you to look at the plan which God conceived in His mind, the plan which Jesus accomplished, because that's what Peter directs us to in our text we've come this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. If you haven't opened your Bible there, I encourage you to real fast because I'm going to read it. 1 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. My message this morning is appropriately entitled, The Plan of Salvation. I want to put forth for all of us a big picture of our salvation. And, and Peter does that for us. And he starts here first point in verse 20, that God planned it. God planned our salvation Paul writes there in verse, Peter writes there in verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, this is obviously talking about God the Father and God the Son, God and Jesus. Something was happening with them before the foundation of the world. There are some biblical passages that give us uh, an idea what took place before the world was created. Here we see one, and we'll get back to this one, but I want you to. Think about John 1.1. Some of you have memorized this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in John's Gospel, it's clear that the Word became flesh, and it's talking about Jesus. So you could read John 1.1 like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. 
We see there a hint of the Trinity, how you have Jesus with God, kind of two people, but Jesus is God, one person. I mean, that, that's what the Trinity is. Just add another person there. Three persons, um, one God, put all together. I don't know how it works, but we see that here in John chapter 1, verse 1. But I want you to think about that Jesus was with God. The Greek text says Jesus was proston theon, meaning that he was toward God. And many people pointed out that it's almost as he was face to face. He was at a, a restaurant, if you will. God the Father on one side of the table, Jesus on the other side of the table, looking at each other like lovers because they loved each other with a perfect love, a close relationship, an intimate fellowship, the Father with the Son. Before the creation of the world, this is the place. And Jesus alluded to how glorious this situation was when he said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. He's talking about this time in eternity past when I was with the Father and we both had glory and we're looking at each other and we had a relationship with one another. It's before time began. It's easy to see how Peter writes here about how Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. There was a relationship between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. And it was easy for Peter to write this because Peter heard Jesus pray this in his upper room. Father, I desire that you glorify me together with the glory which we had before the world was. Peter heard that. So he knew of this prior relationship within the Trinity. existed in times past. But Peter, in, in 1 Peter 1.20, is alluding to more than just uh, foreknowing each other in terms of knowledge and relationship. He's, he's talking about knowledge in the sense of purpose. Just as Peter just finished describing our redemption in verses 18 and 19, about how it's in the precious blood of Christ, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. He's talking about the sacrifice of Christ, and in that sense, God foreknew that He would be the precious sacrifice before the foundation of the world. God's foreknowledge of Jesus had to do with God's plan of redemption. Jesus would come as the one who'd spill out His precious blood for our sins. See, when Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God, it was no accident. I mean, think about these windows lining here the south side of our cafeteria. It's no accident that those windows are there and equally spaced as there are. It's no accident that there are seven of them because the architect designed it that way. So also it's no accident that Jesus was a bloody sacrifice because that's what God foreknew. That's what God planned What's wonderful here about Peter is that the foreknowledge of God goes far beyond just Jesus. He goes even to us as well. Look at the very first two verses of 1 Peter. Here you see the foreknowledge of God even coming to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. These are scattered believers who God chose. How? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here was, again, before the foundation of the world, chosen by God. And in this sense, as they were chosen, they were foreknown by God. In several places, the Bible speaks about this whole aspect of of God before time even began, of choosing a people for Himself. Consider Ephesians 1 verse 4, which I read earlier. This is why I read it earlier. It might be in your mind. Ephesians 1 4, God chose Him 
God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, He chose us in Christ. Not because of merit of our own. Because before the foundation of the world, we didn't have any merit. Not because of anything that we did. Because before the foundation of the world, we didn't do anything. Nor even because of anything that we would do. Because salvation is of grace. It's not of works. It's not something that we will do. God unconditionally elected those to be His own in eternity past. That's what the Bible speaks about salvation. Now, what's interesting about first, or Ephesians 1.4 is, is the way in which it speaks about God choosing us. Because it says in uh, Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So you just think about this. You're God before the foundation of the world, before any of us are created. He's thinking about us, and He chooses us how? In Jesus Christ. Now, in order for God to choose us in Christ, He had to foreordain what would take place with Christ. It's not that God chose us and then said, well, how am I going to redeem these people? No, it's God chose us and He knew full well how He was going to redeem us. He's going to redeem us through the death and uh, burial resurrection of Christ. It's not like God took out uh, our salvation on a credit card only dealing with you know a month later when the bill comes. How am I going to pay this now? Oh, the sacrifice. No, He knew long beforehand, long before He took out that charge, how He's going to pay for it. He knew how He's going to redeem the chosen ones. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was decreed to be the Lamb that was slain for our sins. The next verse in Ephesians really demonstrates how secure it was. Ephesians 1.5, who are protected by the power of God. I'm sorry, that's 1 Peter 1.5. That's not going to Ephesians 1.5, I have my notes. God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. As God decreed the things that would take place, He predestined the things that would take place. He ensured that these things would actually take place predestining us to believe in Jesus and thereby to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's talking about when he says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter's addressing God's plans long before time began. As D.A. Carson puts it poetically, long before the creation began, he foreknew those he'd ransom in Christ. Long before time's cold hourglass ran, he ordained the supreme sacrifice. In the cross, He removed our disgrace to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. You know, there's a reason why God did things this way. There's a reason why God chose before the foundation of the world, those would be there so that His praise, His grace might be exalted and lifted high so that it's nothing of us. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and that is not of yourself. Your faith isn't of yourself. It's a gift of God so that none of us can boast in anything, not even our faith to believe. It's by His doing you're in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30. God planned our salvation from the foundation of the world that would be in Christ. Think about this. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Right? Not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace, which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's not by our works. Well, how is it? It's by God's purpose and grace, which He granted to us in all eternity before the foundation of the world. 
And you get the sense even also in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul speaks about the hope of eternal life, which we have, which God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. Now think about that with me. Here's God in eternity past, from all eternity, before the foundation of the world, promised the hope of eternal life. Now, who did He promise that to? Who was around before the foundation of the world? The Trinity. I think that He made a promise to the Son. He says, Jesus, I will give you these people who I will redeem, but you've got a part in this. You're going to come and die. Are you willing? And He was absolutely willing to do what the Father told Him to do. That mean the Son was willing to come and die to purchase the church. Totally willing to do that. Eternity passed. This promise has been made that someday then Christ would be head over all. Right? We read that in the end of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. And that's what Peter's speaking about here when he speaks about God's foreknowing Jesus before the foundation of the world. You know, there's some people who take out their pipes at this point and they say, well, it just, it just is that God looked down what? What do people say? God looked down the, the the corridors of time, right? And saw what it is that we would do and then chose us on the basis of that. But that's, that's not what Scripture talks about. It's not what Scripture talks about. On the contrary, Peter's talking here about God foreordaining the future. I mean, it can't just foreknow that all these things would just kind of take place about being redeemed in Christ. You can't make a promise. You make a promise when you're sure to deliver. And God who can't lie is going to be sure to deliver. He's not assured a hope of how things are going to turn out. In fact, some translations bring in this fact as very point. The King James and New King James translate this word foreknow using the word foreordained. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world. The NIV also translates that he was chosen before the creation of the world. In both instances, these translators recognize the active, choosing, deciding, purposing hand of God. And I love what Wayne Grudem says in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says this, and, and I quote this because I think he explains it more succinctly than I can. He says, when God knows something beforehand, it is certain that that event will occur. And assuming the event, therefore, ordained by God seems to be the only alternative to the non-Christian idea of a certainty of of events brought about by an impersonal, mechanistic fate. So in other words, if God is just looking down the corridors of time, really, what what involvement is He having here in history? None. He's got a deistic involvement. Well, I just know how this mechanical process of time is going to work itself out. But may I say, you never, ever, ever see that in Scripture. You always see God's active hand in history. I love the passage of Isaiah. You know, I can't quote exactly right, but it's Isaiah 44 someplace where it says that God causes the omens to fail. So, in other words, when somebody makes a prediction using witchcraft or some kind of medium, spiritistic medium, God will cause that to fail because He ordains. And He purposes Isaiah 46, verse 10. He declares the end from the beginning. He can predict the future because He causes the future. And that's exactly what took place. That's what Peter's talking about here. Foreknown before the foundation of the world, God knew that Christ would be the one, caused Christ to be the one who would take the place for us, for our sins. God is like the architect who thought this very building into existence. He's the one that planned it. 
In the same way, just as none of us know, knew the architect of this building, so also we were totally unaware of God's plan before time began. We didn't know, have any idea of God's plans to save a people for Himself out of the world that He would create. But God was planning His church and our salvation before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1. So what God did in eternity, He planned the building of His church. He did so by choosing those whom He redeemed from fallen humanity and He determined how it is they'd be redeemed. He decreed that Jesus would die for the sins of the elect, that He might redeem them, bring them into His church. And that's what we see in our next point this morning. Not only did God plan our salvation, but Jesus accomplished it. Jesus accomplished our salvation. This comes here in the last half of verse 20. But it appeared in these last times... For the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Now the fact here that Jesus appeared, the idea is here isn't that Jesus like appeared from nowhere. Rather, it's he finally came on the scene. Jesus was off stage and he came on stage. You know, the builders of this building didn't show up the day that some people had the idea to build a church building, did they? I mean, when the first people gathered together, They said, oh, it would be great if we had a Christian high school. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Builders didn't say, I'm here. I got my hammer. I'm ready to go. It didn't take place that way. had to be lots of planning until it was time for the builders to come in. A vision for the school needed to be cast, finances secured, land purchased, city permits obtained. And then the builders would come. Inappropriate sequence. Foundation first, walls, electricity, plumbing, just whenever the sequence of things took place. And so also with Jesus, it was similar. He had to wait till the time was right. You can see that here in verse 20. Has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, Peter's getting at when he said that Jesus came in the last days, is that in order for there to be last days, there has to be what? First days or former days. And do you know what God was doing in these former days? He was preparing for the last days. Think about um, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time came, when the first days, the fullness of time came, then what did God do? God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive, we might receive adoption as sons. See, the time had to be right for Christ to come. And in these former days, God was busy. Just as the architect is busy um, drawing plans, and just as the, the planning committee is busy talking with the city, and, and just as the financiers are busy trying to raise money and cast his vision, so also God was busy. And the way he was busy is that he wanted to establish lots of things so that people, when Jesus came, they'd understand what it was that he was about. Jesus couldn't come ten days after the fall because they wouldn't understand what it meant for a a man to come live perfectly and redeem people. Rather, God had to build these structures. He had to establish a law so people would understand that, that they're sinners, right? It's because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Lord also needed to establish a pattern of how it is that sins are forgiven. And the pattern was given in Old Testament sacrifice. And I think we're slow learners. That's why God caused for 1,400 years these sacrifices offered every morning, every night, when possible. That's why people, families would come and offer to the priest their their lamb, which they would offer up to sacrifice. In fact, so much so did God ingrain this idea that one could almost say in the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. 
So God taught for 1,400 years since Moses about sacrifice, sacrifice, factory. And they're all anticipating the time when Jesus would come so it would be understood. So they'd be ready for the builder of the church. A Savior would need to come and shed His blood. And also, it's interesting that as God taught about the sacrifice, how did He teach the sacrifice? It had to be pure. A blemished animal couldn't be sacrificed. And so also they said, oh, well, this, the one sacrifice for our sins need to be a pure sacrifice. That's why Jesus came as a Savior who was without sin. But that wasn't all the Lord taught. He didn't just talk about sin and sacrifice. He also talked about the, the importance of approaching Him and, and the need for a priest to approach God. Over the years, it was clear to the Israelite that God wasn't to be taken lightly. You can't just mosey into God's presence and say, Hey, God, how are you doing? You can't do that. You need a priest. You need to come with blood. And in fact, he established Yom Kippur. The day when not any priest, but the high priest would enter not the holy place, but the holy of holy place. Small room, 15 feet by 15 feet, where the, the Ark of the Covenant was there. Once to offer up sacrifice for himself and then to offer sacrifice for all the people. And the people would, would wait outside and, and listen to the high priest. Remember in Luke chapter 1 when they were nervous about Zacchaeus? Zechariah. Zechariah. We're nervous about Zechariah not coming out. Well, what happened? Did God strike him dead? Because a priest needs to come in a most holy place. And we as people need a priest to offer up sacrifice for our sins. And God was teaching that in the former time so that when our true high priest came the one who offered his blood once for all and entered into the Holy of Holies who forever intercedes for his people and who can stand before the throne of God above and, and plead perfectly for these people based upon his own blood. People would understand that. But there was more. It was not just sacrifice and not just sin that God was teaching these last time. That's just priesthood. But also he was teaching about the, the kingly reign. How when the Messiah would come he would reign forever. This wasn't just some Schmuck priest just kind of coming on the, on the side. Now, this was an exalted king who would come time after time after time. God promised the nation of Israel that he would raise up a, a righteous king that would sit on the throne of David forever. And Israel knew what unrighteous kings were about. Israel and North had 20 kings. And you know what? All of them were wicked and self serving. And in the south of the 19 kings, there were many of them who were wicked as well. There were some who were good. You can probably name some of them, like Hezekiah or Josiah or others. But those good kings kind of foreshadowed who the ultimate king would be. And God even promised to David, Second Samuel 7, David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when the Messiah would come, he would be not only a priest, not only a lamb, not only adult solving the issue of sin, but he would be the one who we could look to and obey and submit to as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Savior would come as the true king who would lead Israel into prosperity and happiness. And regarding this king, Isaiah prophesied, we know this song Christmas, right? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. God's preparing all these things in, in former times so that in the last times when Christ came, we'd understand
And not only that, but in the former times, he, he predicted, he said, okay, this is what the Messiah is going to be like. Bunch of characteristics. Going to be born of a virgin, going to be born in Bethlehem, going to be born of the line of David, be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He'd come bringing good news to the afflicted, liberty to captives. The Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. He would open the eyes of the blind. He would give skip to the feet of the lame people. He would give um, hearing to the ears of the deaf. He'd give words to the tongue of the mute. So Jesus would be. He'd come with humility, mounted on a donkey. His appearance would be humble. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He would be betrayed by his closest companions. Zechariah 13:7. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock would be scattered. He'd be killed and buried. His tomb would be with a rich man. Prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 9. Be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord causing all the iniquity to fall upon him. People would understand that. Well, should have understood that. They were poor learners. Didn't have the perspective of history. It's very hard. But God was still teaching in former times. So in the, the latter times, we'd understand it. In fact, even God told them exactly when it would take place. He put it on his calendar. Daniel chapter 9 prophesied about the time of his appearance. It said in Daniel chapter 9, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So there's this decree someplace. From the issuing of that decree, King Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. issued this decree to build the walls of Jerusalem, right? Sound it all up. He said there will be 62 weeks and then there will be seven weeks. If you trace through some of the prophetic mumbo-jumbo, you see that that's talking about 639 years, 400 years, 490 years. And um, so you subtract one because of 69, whatever. It, it prophesied it precisely when Jesus would come. And would they have the knowledge and understanding discernment? They would know from God that in the former times when exactly the Messiah would come. And so in the former times, what God was doing is He was busy teaching Israel in the midst of the Messiah to come. And so that they were ready to see Him as prophet, priest, king, sacrificial lamb, and fulfillment of prophecy. So it wouldn't, wouldn't be missed on them. That was God's purpose. You know, each Christmas time when our family gathers for opening our presents... Um, I always say something to our kids about, guys, why, why are we opening presents here today? And the kids are like, let's get at them, let's get at them. And I say, well, why are we doing this? And I always read some kind of scripture, read the Christmas story, and we just say something to this effect. Now, this isn't word for word, but you guys know this. This is a testimony, right? And we say, well, you know what? We're opening gifts today, symbolic of the greatest gift that God gave us is Jesus. And as we open these gifts, let's remember. And so then when we open the gifts, you know, at least there's some teaching in former times before Christmas so that AC, after Christmas, the latter times, they can understand what gifts are about. And we do that with the Lord's Supper too, right? Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, don't we think back, reflect upon, and just say, you know, what's this bread and this cup for? Isn't it, isn't it for Christ? dying for us. We believe it. We commune with Him. and Just reminding of us of that so that when we partake of it and experience it, it makes sense. And that's what God was doing with Israel in the former times so that, verse 20, in these last times, His appearance would make sense or could be explained. And you know what? Quite frankly, many of the people didn't understand the appearance of Christ. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think, if they would have known, they wouldn't have crucified the Prince of Glory. So they, they didn't quite know in the foreordination of God. The early church prayed about that in Acts chapter 4. You raised up Pontius Pilate and Herod, a 
according to your predetermined plan foreknowledge of God to crucify our Messiah. And so then afterwards, in the last times, when they look back and they have the benefit of history, they can start explaining. That's what the Gospels are. And that's what the Epistles are. The Epistles explain and interpret the life of Christ. And Peter here is interpreting the life of Christ. All these things in former times were so that we can understand the last times. But I want us, before we go on, to look at the last phrase here, verse 20. He appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, my, my prayer at this point is that you would have great encouragement come into your soul from learning what this means. When Jesus came to earth, it was with a purpose. When Jesus came to earth, it was with us in mind. He came with a purpose to redeem us. As I woke this morning, there was a song on the radio. My wife was busy in the bathroom. And uh, I turned up the radio real loud so she could hear what this song was. Because I talked to her about the night before and I told her I was going to use this illustration. It was, <laughs> it was like the song that woke me up this morning. So maybe that's a symbol from God. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But it's a song that many in the church sing today. It's entitled Above All. Have you heard this song before? Let me just read it for you. In fact, I remember the first time I heard this song. I, I remember where I was. I remember who was leading it. I remember exactly about it. As she was going along, my heart was so This is a new song. We could sing this at Rock Valley Bible Church. This would be wonderful. This is, this is great. I love this song. Okay, and then I'll tell you the rest of the story. Here are the words that I was loving. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of men, You were here before the world began. Above everything, you were here. Above all kingdoms and all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure your worth. Fabulous, fabulous song. Crucified. And and I love the juxtaposition of the, the great God and then the humility. Crucified. Laid behind a stone in his tomb. You lived to die, rejected and alone. That's like wonderful. God's exalted above all. This God comes down to be crushed for our sins. Then the fatal lines come. In fact, the last two words kill the song. Like a rose trampled on the ground. And again, Jesus, like a rose, just trampled this beautiful flower, trampled. You took the fall and thought of me above all. And the thing about that is, using the words above all brings us back to we're more important than all the kingdoms and all of everything. We are like God. It it just, it crushed me. I remember singing and it's going, oh. And I was physically distraught. I said, we're not going to sing a song at Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, the reason why I bring up this song isn't to say how bad the song is, because it can be redeemed, right? Um, nor is it to show you how highly discerning I am regarding musical lyrics, right? I, you know, there is poetic license, there is poetic freedom there. I, I understand that, right? I, I bring this song up, though, because it does capture a kernel of truth which I want you to see, because it's not all awash, because there is something there that 
I want to bring your attention to is that when Jesus died, He came for our sake. That's what verse 20 says. He died for the, the sake of you. We were in His mind when He was dying on the cross. I firmly believe that. Now, I don't believe that He could name everybody. Oh yeah, 2007, Rockford. Yeah, Mark Landman, uh, Tim Iverson. Uh, I don't, I don't think he could do that in the limitations of his flesh and humanity. I don't think he, I don't think he could even name the people of First Peter because they had never seen him. Chapter one, verse eight. Jesus had never seen them. I, I don't think, unless he dipped into some omniscience somehow or some kind of revelation from God, maybe he could name their names. But though perhaps he couldn't name our names in the flesh, certainly in eternity past he could because he chose us by name. I called you by name. God the Father knew who everyone was. But Jesus knew why He was dying. He was dying to redeem. He was dying for the very people who were cursing at Him. Because we read in Acts chapter 6 that many priests became obedient to the faith. He, he was dying for these people. And there were many names. He said, I'm dying for you, buddy. Because after I'm gone, I raise again, you will be converted and you'll bow the knee to me. I think He had names of many people in mind. He knew the disciples that He had. By name, those who who were called. And Jesus knew all 12 of them and knew that one of them was the son of perdition. So he knew full well that these 11 would be redeemed by his blood. But Peter's writing these people who God, Jesus never knew. And in that sense, that he never knew us personally in the flesh. Probably didn't, but, but he was dying with us in mind. And in fact, Peter knew that he had us in mind. Because in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, which I referred to, remember, in, Acts, in John 17, when Peter was there in the upper room, listen to what Jesus prayed. <clears throat> he says, I do not ask on behalf of these disciples alone. First he prayed for himself, and then he prayed for the disciples right there among him, the eleven. <clears throat> and then he prayed for us. I do not ask, Father, on behalf of these disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe the apostolic word. One of whose Peter. We believe in Peter. Right? We believe in John. Passed on down through Polycarp. Passed on down through the ages. Written down. That's what we believe. But think about a few verses later what Jesus says. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also... Okay? So I'm not talking about the disciples. I'm talking about us. They also, whom you have given me... Even Jesus here had a sense that there were people given to him... There were more than the disciples who he was dying for. I want these you've given me to be with me where I am or where I will be in glory, right? And the purpose of that, so they may see my glory, which you, Father, have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Right? You catch what Jesus is saying? He's saying, God, my prayer is for these people who will believe through the word of the apostles. I want them to be with me so that they can see that I'm above all. Not so that I thought of them above all. I want them to be with me so you can see that I'm above all. And so as Jesus was thinking of us through His suffering, it wasn't so that we are something great that He thought of above all, but rather it's so that we can see His glory and worship Him above all. And where the song above all may fail in lifting us up so high, there is some truth to this, okay? So... Maybe we could change the last stanza to be something like this. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you 
took the fall and thought of me through it all. Right? That'd be a wonderful song. We could sing that at Rock Valley Bible Church. I don't know if we're going to or not, but we could. Right? I would sing that song gladly. Because there is the truth that Jesus in dying thought of us because He died for our sake. He knew Phil well that He was going to redeem many. He had us in His mind when He died, but it doesn't lift, lift us up above everything and above all like the song does. Because Jesus died with the intention of saving us. That's what First Peter says. Well, let's move on here. The plan of salvation. God planned it. Jesus accomplished it. And finally now, verse 21, we believe it. We believe it. See, once a building is planned by an architect and it's built by the builders, once it's all finished, what happens? We get to use it. We get to enjoy it. We get to be in it. We get to have church in it. We get to play basketball afterwards in it. We get to skateboard on the sidewalk afterwards. Right, Aftar? Right. We can meet. In fact, the case in point is our building. Long ago, the architects drew up this plan. So long ago, the builders finished their work. And this morning, we as a church body get to use it and enjoy it. Now, how many of you would rather be outside today? I'd rather be in here. Thank you very much. And that's what verse 21 is talking about. Verse 21 is talking about our participation in the plan of salvation. We participate by believing. Who through Him, who through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. This verse describes how we participate in the plan of salvation. We participate by believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. We participate in the plan of salvation by believing in the God who raised Jesus up to glory. Right? My mind goes to um, Philippians 2. Therefore God also highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And our faith is in this exalted Christ. I mean, Jesus even alluded to that. I want them to be with me so they may see my glory. See how exalted He is. He raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. Our faith is in, as Peter said, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in God, who will bring us into His eternal glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. That's where our hope is, it's where our faith is, where our trust is, where our belief is, and that's how we participate. Just as we participate in the building by coming in here, so also we participate in Christ by coming here and by coming to Him. At this point in my message, I just want to ask you, do you believe? I know Peter wrote, assuming that he was writing to believers, which is the way I think I ought to preach. You're coming to church, assuming belief. But I know there are several here who don't believe. I'm sure of that. And I ask you, are you, do you believe in God? Do you believe in this God who was raised from the dead? I'm not just talking about any God. I'm not talking about a God from your mind. I'm talking about the God here who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you believe in the resurrection? I'm not talking about any God. I'm talking about the God who exalted Jesus to His right hand. That's the God I'm talking about. Do you believe in this God? Do you believe that Christ lived a blameless life and shed His precious blood for our sins? 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1. Do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? That He was dead. Blue. No life in Him at all. But God breathed life in again. 
just like he did the first Adam, breathe light so he could walk out of the tomb with his bleeding wounds and his wrists or his hand, wherever it was, and his feet and his side. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Do you believe that God highly exalted this Jesus in heaven? Do you believe that he's King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you believe that he is the one raised to glory? That's why we worship Jesus as heaven does. Do you believe that? Do you have a faith in God? Do you have a hope in God? Right? This is everything verse 21 outlines for us. Right, Our faith in God comes through our belief in his Son. Right? It's through Jesus that we believe and ultimately Jesus causes us to believe in God. It's through Jesus that our faith and our hope is in God. So do you believe this? You know, one way to test this might, might be this. Are there things in your life that you would need to change if you believed these things? So, right, just think about th- are there things in your life. Are there maybe sins in your life that you, sh- you should give up if you believe these things? So are there an allocation of your time? You need to change how you allocate your time based upon my, my belief. Are, are there activities that you're involved in that need to change if you would believe is your speech. Your speech needs to change. Now, now, here's the test. All of us can come up with a list of things that, you know what, if I really believe this, I'd change this. All right? So, so all of us should have things on this side that we're thinking about, okay? Whether you're a non-believer, whether you're a believer, all of us have things on this side. But here's my question to you now. How do you look at those things? Do you look at those things and say, yeah, I should change this, but pff, I don't have any interest in changing that? I should change this, but <laughs> no, I want to do this instead of what God calls me to do. Or do you say, oh man, God, I'm doing the very thing I hate. Help me, God, to, to change and not to do those things anymore. See, there's a big difference in those two perspectives. First person's in trouble, second person's a believer. Because we're not perfect. But we want to be perfect. And we'll be perfect someday. We stand on this side. We look at our list and we say, God, help help me. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to overcome these things. Help me to, to conquer my sin. And it's a constant pursuit. When you sin, you, you hate it. But if you're on this side, you're in trouble. You know, I was talking with someone this week. I asked this very question to them. Ask this person, are there things in your life that if you believed you need to change? This person came up, told me about five things. God, I've changed this, I've changed this, I've changed this, changed this. And I said, okay, good, good, good. Do you have a desire to change those? He said, nope. And I, I said, well, if you believe in Christ, these things need to change. He said, yep. And you don't want to change them? He said, an unbeliever. I ask you, where are you today? Where are you today? If this describes where you are, you don't believe in Jesus. And you don't believe in all that God has planned from eternity past. And you don't believe all that Jesus accomplished in his life. All that means Zippo, nothing to you. But if you do believe, and you do want those things to, to change. Just, just cry out to God. You know, God planned this building. The builders built it, and we enjoy it. 
and, and these things, right? The God plan for the foundation of the world. These are the things that He would redeem us from. Jesus actually accomplished that redemption. Now we need to seek about getting away with those things. And you know, it, it is interesting. It's not like, oh, I need to give this up. Oh, I don't, I don't want to give it up, but I have to. It's totally different. When you believe and trust in Jesus, you will say, I don't want to do that anymore. Totally different perspective. It's not I'm giving up anything. It's like you're giving up what you don't want anyway. If you're in the situation where, you, um, where you're holding on to these things, I just want to quote one, one quote for you. C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, just think of all the things that Jesus, many houses, you know, pleasures forever with Jesus, reigning with Him. If we would believe those things, it, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It's not that our desires here are too strong, it's that our desires above are too weak. He says this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I just say these things. When you believe and trust in Christ, you'll see these things that are besetting sins that you hate. Your problem is you don't, you're not pleasing God enough. And you pray to God, help me from those things. I just plead for you if you don't believe this morning to, to, to turn away from these things and believe in Christ and the worldly pleasures which you don't want to give up so much. We turn into delighted joys when you say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. Well, it's my prayer this morning that we would all be found believing as verse 21. Who through him are believers in God. Oh, may we all believe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your plan of salvation. Plan before the foundation of the world, accomplished in the last times, and enjoyed now by us. And I pray, Lord, in all things that you would work and stir among us, Lord, to be those who, who believe and embrace you to see these precious promises of this great inheritance that's been promised for us that far surpasses any struggles or trials or difficulties that we have in this life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Praise the Lord. We can look back and we have recorded what He's done for us. We can look forward to that. If you would take your insert final song this morning.